welcome to episode 268 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So this is a little bit exciting because we're in some ways, although we can never completely draw to a close our little section on the Trinity here. We're going to be talking a little bit about inseparable operations or INSEP op, yes. as I like to call it. Are we in the military? <laughs> INSEP op. <laughs> that's the fun way to refer to it. Like, that's yeah. what the kids are calling it. Yeah, I guess. You know, it's like when you take a name and you, like, you shorten it to like just a couple of syllables. INSEP op. I guess, I guess one of the things the kids are saying now is drip. I don't know what that means. I think it's like, it's like good. Like I just fly. I don't know. I'm stuck in like the late nineties for my, for my lingo. It's mint. Go all the way back to like the late eighties. That, that outfit is mint. Now they're like, that outfit is drip. I don't know. Kids these days. Wow. I don't know, but we should try to figure that out and incorporate it in. I think we should just, when, when the kids start talking in their kid way and they start saying things like yeet and drip. We should be like, we should just default back to the King's English. Be like, verily thus outfit <laughs> is exceptionally astounding. Handsome. Thou, <laughs> thine, ye. Well, clearly yeah, among the many roles that we need here at the Reformed Brotherhood is an advisor, consultant of sorts. <laughs> When it comes to this type of language. So if yes. you are that person, info at reformbrotherhood.com <laughs> is where you can contact us so that yes. you can save us from this whole inseparable operation of <laughs> that we just did right here. I this don't whole know. component. Pull yeah, up. So Pull up. let's get let's get away from this for just yes. a second and go back into some lovely affirmations and denials. You know what doesn't go out of style? You know what always is cool to say? What you affirm and what you deny. So what are you it's affirming true. this week? So I'm going to cheat a little bit by affirming a bunch of things. Um, How dare you? I'm affirming this category I'm calling December books. And I don't know why it went down this way, but there are a bunch of really awesome reformed books that I had on pre-order that are all being shipped in December. So Reformed Ethics Volume 2 from uh, Herman Bovink is coming out. Uh, Systematic Reformed Systematic Theology Volume 3 by Joel Beakey is coming out. Um uh, theoretical Practical Theology by Petrus von Maastricht is coming out. Uh, I think that might be the only one, but it's just, it's a good month for books for some reason. I feel like all the publishers knew that I was actually taking a whole week off at the end of the year this year. And we're like, we need to get these books to him. So he has something to do. That could be. Yeah. The publishers definitely publish based on my <laughs> availability. So <laughs> If you're wondering why your next favorite book has come out, you can call my employer and tell them I need another vacation because that'll get it right out there. Please don't. I've do heard that. that's that's most publishers' contractual yeah. cycle is Tony yep. needs something to read, people. Yep. Exactly. What are we going to send to him? I love yeah. that though. So I think my favorite one that I'm looking forward to, uh, I I don't actually remember how I heard about it, but I got into a, a Facebook group that's a like a year long. It's like a reading group for the three volumes of, of Beaky's Systematics. So we're going to be working through all three volumes over the next year. So nice. I think that's the one I'm most excited about, even though I'm not going to get to it for like, I don't know, like 26, 27 weeks or something like that. But uh, I'm pretty excited because I, I, I have both of those volumes and I've done a little bit of like 
tourism reading is what I call it when like you need to check a particular part of it for something or you're doing research, but I haven't had a chance to just like break them open and dig in from page one. So I'm excited to do that. That's always exciting. At least yeah. for me that, that let me tag onto that a little bit. And I would say what well, this is like sub affirmation. We're getting very meta that not metaverse. <laughs> Not that. Although, if you want to subscribe to the Reformed Brotherhood podcast, that's like giving us a high five in the metaverse. We totally appreciate that. Just so. just a side note before you go into your sub affirmations. Have you seen some of the commercials for the metaverse that, that they're trying to like make? They're trying to be like, this is what the life's going to be like now. And it's yes. like, it's like two people having their first kiss, but they're like, they're like cartoon avatars. And I was like, does anybody really think that a first kiss is going to be better when you're doing it online than like an actual real first kiss? Cause that's what they're trying to make it seem like, like this is going to be the best thing ever. And I'm like, I, I don't want to have like a hippo head when I'm trying to play ping pong. It just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Seems like that would get in the way. We're so deep into this at this point. It's, mm-hmm. And it's great. This is the commercial where like the, there's like the techno music and that the tiger and like, the, yeah. Yeah. Or like yeah. dancing. I do like that part. Yeah. But I mean like, no, like real life. This needs to be real. Like this is real life. Re- let's do real life before we start doing this other thing. So here are Tony and me on our front lawn, shaking our fists <laughs> everybody who's inside on the internet. Yeah. And then it'll be like a trailer to be like coming in 2097, the reformed meta hood. <laughs> so this actually feeds in really well. You actually came right back around to what I was going to say, which was sometimes the nice thing about the year turning over, which in many ways, of course, it's a beautiful thing when our calendars reset, but that's arbitrary as we talked about before, but it gives us that excuse to do something opposite metaverse, which is start a book club, Yeah, get a book in front of you with some friends or some family. And even whether you're together or you're apart, Go ahead and read it together. Set a schedule. Just do it. You will like it. It'll be super fun. You'll actually talk to somebody and you'll get to read some amazing content. So whatever that is, I feel like the turnover of the year is like just a really good excuse to say this year, we're going to do it. So here's your opportunity, loved ones. The new year is coming. So take a look at your book lists. If you have them, if you're super nerdy like Tony and I, take a look at your lists. We know you have them. If you don't have one, go make one. Find something that you want to read and get somebody to join you with it with it. Yeah. Yeah. At this rate, I'm going to have to read like, like Herman Bovink's reformed ethics as like a bedtime story to my new son it's that's arriving reading. in March. Yeah. It's going to be like, I know you want to read like Goodnight moon, but we just really need to plow through like fallen humanity restored. Like this chapter is really key. So sorry, little guy, but he'll love it. Yeah. He, I mean, that's a great way to fall asleep. Honestly, if you're talking about fallen humanity yeah, restored. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love what, it. What are you affirming today? Well, I'm going to kind of jump on that little book train that you got going on. We're going to talk about inseparable operations, or or again, this is what's been told to me as a cool kid say, INSEP, INSEP op. And so one of the resources I would recommend, I'm just kind of preempting our conversation because I'm sure people are going to say, my goodness, you guys just did the definitive episode on inseparable operations. But I feel like there might be a little bit more for me to go out there and learn and to read. And in fact, loved ones, there is. So I'm going to recommend your boy, Adonis Vidu, on this topic, because he has the book, The Same God Who Works All Things, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology. That is an excellent piece of work right there. But, and sorry, that was like unironically, not like that's a piece of work, but that's an excellent, (laughs) that is an excellent piece of work. But if you just go and Google the title of this article, 
how the doctrine of inseparable operations unlocks the gospel, how mm-hmm. the doctrine of, of inseparable operations unlocks the gospel. This is an article by Adonis Feeder that's in some ways, I think, like a really great, almost like an executive summary of that whole yeah. large tome that he's written. But this is super approachable if you're the kind of person that sometimes thinks, wow, Tony and Jesse talk about things that I cannot connect directly to my life. What is going on with this? Why does this really matter? Here is a wonderful article that hopefully just comes alongside everything we've been saying and supports why we're talking about the Trinity and all of its wonderful nuance and facets because it does unlock the gospel. He does a really great job articulating that. So I'm affirming with this article in particular, how the doctrine of inseparable operations unlocks the Trinity and basically anything by Adonis Vidu, because one, he's a fantastic writer, an excellent theologian too. And three, how could you not like somebody with a name like that? I know. I it's know. a sweet it's, name. It's a phenomenal name. And, you know, uh, we might as well just get this out of the way now. We did an awesome episode uh, with Adonis, who is a dear friend. Um, you know, I have a short list of theologians that personally impacted me, not just in terms of my theological development, but really in terms of, like, who I am as a person. And Adonis Vidu is in like the top three of those people. So we did a, a fun episode with him. It was episode 239, which we did back in May, right after kind of his book came out. Um, go back and listen to it because we're going to cover a lot of the same ground today, but sometimes it's helpful. And and to be honest, like Adonis and I have slightly different views on inseparable operations and divine simplicity. So sometimes it's helpful to hear a different voice and to hear another person explain it. And to be honest, he's a professional theologian and and as much as Jesse and I might play one on the on the internet, uh, we're we're both amateurs. So go <laughs> listen right. to that for sure. His explanations are phenomenal. We're going to cover a lot of the same ground today, but I think you'd benefit from hearing that in addition to what we're going to cover today. All right, so let's flip it around, get a little negative. We've got to, before we get into the insop op, what do you got? All right, so we need to set a timer for mine. So <laughs> what do you think? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, seven what hours? What could this be about? <laughs> What do you think? How long should I how long should I rant about this, Jesse? What do you what are you gonna give me? Listen, let's let it fly. Let's see where oh, this takes us. Oh, that's dangerous, man. That's let's dangerous. Let's see where we go. So I'm denying uh just I'm just denying Molinism and what William Lane Craig. <laughs> so most people who are listening to this are probably aware that uh, William Lane Craig and Dr. James White, uh Dr. William yes. Lane Craig, just to be fair, they're both well, never mind. I don't want to get Ooh. into that. Uh, William Lane Craig has an earned, uh, an earned doctorate and, uh, and from accredited place, uh, James White's not. So anyway, that is a total unrelated, I'm getting in my own way here. Uh, (laughs) they did a a dialogue. I don't want to call it a debate because it's not really a debate, but they both appeared on the radio, the, uh, the radio and podcast show called unbelievable question mark, uh, which is a, an apologetics oriented um, kind of dialogue show based in the UK. It's been on for a really long time. And they finally got James White and William Lane Craig in the same virtual place uh, to talk about Molinism and Calvinism. Meta. And Dr. White didn't, I don't think was a particularly strong showing for him. Um, you know, he, he did a lot of the same kind of stuff he does where he, he started out really, really good. And then I think he got a little bit frustrated with, 
uh, with Craig's kind of evasiveness uh, and refusal to answer some of the questions. And you could tell he, he got frustrated and I think got a little bit more James Whitey than he, he normally does and, and really should have. But a couple of things that came out during this dialogue that I, I think I kind of knew, but I'd, I'd never really seen in the wild uh, is just how crazy and just weird Molinism actually is as a system. So Dr. White did a good job of kind of like exposing that this is not a theology that comes from the scripture. Uh, I think Craig uh, kind of tried to rebuttal that by saying, well, there's all sorts of theologies that reform people hold that don't come from the scriptures, but are compatible with the scriptures. And I think in some some ways that people do theology in the reform world, that may actually be true, but I actually don't think that when you're thinking about things like classical theism, I don't think that's actually true. I think classical theism, as was articulated by people like uh, the reformers in the Reformed Confessions, or as it's represented in people like Calvin, or especially Turretin, I, I don't actually think it's true that this is some philosophically derived theology that is just compatible with the scriptures and then overlaid on top of it, which is kind of how Craig... Uh, described it and and did that in defending the fact that that's what he's doing. So a benefit of this is he was transparent that he does not believe that Molinism is derived from the scripture, but it is, uh, it's a philosophical system that's compatible with the scripture and is the most probable answer for explaining uh, some, some scriptural quandaries about God's involvement in evil and how that comes about. But the strange things that came about that, I, like I said, I think I always knew were there, but was interesting to see on display. The first thing is, is, you know, one of the main critiques of Molinism is called the grounding objection. Uh, I did an episode uh, with a guest uh, back in in April of 2018. It was episode 82, and it was called Molinism and Mid- Middle Knowledge. Actually, I think that was an episode that you and I did. We also did one uh, when I was at the Philadelphia Reform Conference uh, on a similar thing. And one of the things that the, I think the most forceful um, uh, objection and critique of Molinism is called the grounding argument. And so Molinism, you know, go back and listen to the episode, but the short answer or the short definition is that Molinism postulates that there are three types of knowledge that God has. So there's God's natural knowledge, which is basically God's God's knowledge of himself. So that includes knowledge of everything that God could do given his knowledge of himself. It it involves all of the logical possibilities that God could theoretically actualize. And then historically, the other type of knowledge has been God's free knowledge, which is God's knowledge of what he actually will or actually does actualize. I said actually like a thousand times there. So so natural knowledge is God's knowledge of himself. (laughs) Free knowledge is God's knowledge of his decree or his knowledge of what he will do in the future future relative to time, not, not relative to God. There's no future for God. So, uh, Molina was a Jesuit coming after the Reformation who postulated a third kind of knowledge, which is called middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is this, is this conceptual space between natural knowledge and free knowledge where God not only has knowledge of himself, which has, which gives him knowledge of all logical possibilities that are consistent with his own nature. And then, natural or free knowledge, but he has this knowledge of what creatures would do in circumstances that he may or may not actualize. So an example would be, um, you know, my favorite color is orange. And and the reason my favorite color is orange is because I'm red, green, colorblind, and orange is probably the only color I can consistently see. So he, Molina would postulate that in a, in a circumstance where Tony was not colorblind, was not red, green, colorblind, or maybe he's blue, yellow, colorblind, 
then he would have a different a different favorite color. Or uh, if Tony is presented with a menu that does that has steak on it, he would choose steak. But since he's presented with a menu that does not have steak on it, he does not choose steak. So these subjunctive counterfactuals, the what what a free creature would do in a given circumstance, is this middle knowledge that he has. And the reason it's not for Molina considered part of his his natural knowledge is because the thing that restricts these counterfactuals is not logical possibility. It's actually the, the free choices and free uh, motivations of creatures. So where the grounding objection comes in is that the, the question comes in is where, where do these constraints come from? And so from a reform thinkers perspective, we're thinking, well, if the free creature determines the the counterfactual then the truth of that counterfactual must come from the creature and so the system seems incoherent because these counterfactuals are logically prior to god's decree and so how could how could the free creatures determine the counterfactuals if god has not yet logically decreed for them to exist or have any sort of proclivities or a nature or anything like that so Craig responded to that by basically saying that, well, that's just based on some theory of truth called the truth maker theory, in which there must be some state of affairs or some reality that makes a given proposition true. So he's basically saying that like certain counterfactual realities, subjunctive counterfactuals of creature creaturely freedom, they're just true. There's nothing that makes them true. They just are true. And so that was the first thing that I, I don't quite understand how we can have these sort of eternally necessary truths that are related to free creatures that God has not decreed to create or circumstances that God has not decreed to create or actualize. So that was the first kind of weird squirrely thing that I pointed out that I think the reform world needs to think about a little bit more and reform philosophical thinkers. Um, you know, maybe this is something for like the guys at the London Lyceum to dig into or something like that, because that really requires a more analytical philosophical response than something that a systematic theologian who's primarily working with biblical data is competent or equipped to give. I mean, that, that's just not my wheelhouse. The other weird thing is in pressing that point, Dr. White sort of basically said like, well, wait a second though, like all of my decisions, whether they're decisions that I actually do make because I'm in circumstance A or decisions that I would make if I were in circumstance B, those are all related to who and what I am as a creature. And those they take into account the actual history of my life. So they have to be logically posterior to the decree. And Craig said something like, well, yeah, but you could have been born in Africa or you could have been born in this place, you could have had different parents. So it, it was weird because it was actually like this weird platonic, uh, originistic, uh, understanding of like the human person that actually is abstracted from any act, like real concrete, concrete existence in reality. So he was almost saying, and I, I don't think he would affirm this. I don't think he would actually go here, but this is what it sounded like he was saying is that there's some, and they made a big joke about the essence of James White, but there's some, there's some fundamental reality that constitutes and represents this person that we know as James White, but that person could have actually that almost like that soul could have been actualized into other circumstances. And, and the reason I say it's almost platonic is because Plato held this theory of, of human existence where each individual human soul ex exists eternally. And it kind of or, its original state was kind of stuck to God. And then it fell out away from God into the world. And so there's this sort of repeated cycle of a soul returning to God and falling into falling into the world. It's not quite reincarnation, but it's similar. 
and and that soul could could be born to different parents depending on you know certain circumstances so a soul that's born to to parents a in ecuador may actually if things had been slightly different have been born to parents b in new hampshire or in africa and so he he seemed to be postulating this sort of weird system that i think is alien to christian theology that souls pre-exist the creation and ensoulment into a body and that they could have been sort of they could have come into creation in different contexts, but still have somehow been the same, the same person just in a different context. So I'm denying Molinism because I, I think what I want to call out here, this is why I said we needed a timer, Jesse. Why didn't you listen to me about a timer? <laughs> what I want to call out here is just the weirdness of this theology, right? So we started with we started with the idea that Dr. Craig very openly argues that he has a philosophical system that is not derived from scripture, but nevertheless is compatible with, with scripture. And now as he started to defend that or tried to explain it, he's gone from a theory about God's knowledge, which really is a theory about God's, God's being. That's why usually we try to press like the theology proper of this, that somehow God's knowledge is determined by something that's not God, which makes actually makes him not God because his knowledge is constitutive of his being and blah, blah, blah. He went from this theory about God's knowledge and existence. And now all of a sudden he's got a theory that involves him basically saying that souls pre-exist their creation somehow, and that they could have been created in different circumstances, but still had some sort of continuity of, of soulness. And, and that's just a weird unchristian theology. And like I said, I don't think he actually would believe that. I'm not sure if he's teased out those implications about what he actually said there. I would hope he listens back to that and goes, wait a second. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that there's some eternal essence of James White that could have been, you know, instantiated into various circumstances and still somehow have been James White. But if you, if you tease this out to its fullest implications, you actually end up with like some, some weird idea that like James White, who is a cranky 60 something year old Scottish man who was born in the United States actually could have been like a 30 year old, uh, African dude who was born, you know, in, um, in Ghana or something like that. And somehow it still would be the same. It would be the same person just in different circumstances. So I don't want to keep spiraling. Why didn't you let me set a timer? <laughs> Jesse, this is your fault, but it's just, it, I'm just denying this because it, when you start, when you start from a speculative theology that is not required to have some sort of precedent or derivation from scripture, uh, you end up with just weird junk in in the later parts of your system. Um, you know, William Lane Craig is working on a systematic theology book, and as much of a train wreck as I think that's going to be, it's going to be a train wreck that I can't look away from. So I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that when it comes out. Um, but I think we're going to see this, that like his systematic theology is, it might follow the same basic structure that most systematic theologies do, but it's going to end up with some really weird, some really, really weird conclusions in places that we might not expect it. And kind of unapologetically so, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking about that. We, we've said before, I think we've gone on record by saying like he is first and foremost by his own admission, a philosopher, not a theologian. Yeah. So his whole point of entry is one that's very different than maybe the conversations you and I are used to having and maybe people are used to hearing. By the way, people can go and find this. It, it is on YouTube. It's about like an hour, 18 minutes. It's yeah. worth watching. It's really fascinating. The discussion is interesting. Yeah. I think in the end, I was more distracted by over time how much larger James White's 
cross jewelry keeps getting. Yeah. So <laughs> I commented to someone the other day, this might not be appropriate. And I'm sorry if we have any, any hipster Anglican listeners, but I, I saw the screen, you know, they publicized the screen grab of this, right. this conference before the actual debate. And someone shared it with me. And I said, when did James White start dressing like a, like a liberal Anglican hipster all oh, of a sudden? Oh yeah. Cause yeah. he's got like the, he's got like the black turtleneck and he wears yep. the cross and like, it's like, what happened to you, man? Like, you, what? Ha- like, just go back to wearing a kilt or whatever it is you used to wear. <laughs> it's very strange. Saying. He's had a very strange tram- for transformation that I don't, I don't fully understand. Um, what happened there? Well, there's been but, like an evolution of style for him by himself. I mean, this is not like the reform style podcast, yeah. but like, how do you know? I mean, he used to be known for like the sweaters, like the, the weird eccentric Kuz, kind Kuzi of like sweaters or whatever they yeah. are. Yeah. And so I just was like, wow, that cross keeps getting bigger. I have nothing against cross or cross truly. I just thought. Yeah, it was strange. It was very strange. It's very much a like neo-Anglican. It's like the emergent Anglican, like the emergent church (laughs) Anglicans, the people who are coming out of the the Anglican tradition and went into the emergent church. It's like this weird... I don't know. We should stop on this. I feel like we're going to, we're going to cross a line of some sort, but it was a very strange, strange outfit. We we already crossed it. I like that idea though, for a podcast or a TV show, like immersion church, Anglican edition. It'd be like, who wore it better? Neo Cranmer (laughs) or James White? (laughs) It's just striking your loved ones. That's all we're saying. If you go on and see it, you'll be like, Oh, that's, it was that's an interesting statement. So that's why I would advise listening to it on a podcast instead of watching it, because you'll be very distracted by by James White's giant cross jewelry and weird Steve Jobs turtleneck. Well, and by comparison, I would say like William like Cray looks like very just kind of uh I don't know. He's, He's kind of looked he, like Mr. Rogers a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I was yeah, gonna say a like a more, a more conservatively thing. dressed collared shirt underneath like a yeah. sweater. Like you're so expecting him to like step back and like take off his dress shoes and put yes. on some tennis shoes quick yes. and then like pull out a puppet. Yeah. Yes. Like while he was explaining the theological weight of Molinism, like that he would lean back and change his shoes yeah. real quick. Yeah. That's there's something happening in my head right now that I have to share with the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Let's trying to think of the song for the trolley to the imaginary kingdom or whatever it is. But the only thing that I can think of is the Wicked Witch of the West theme song which is not the same thing, but I cannot get that imaginary trolley song in my head. I can't, can't find it. It's funny you bring this up. Just this past week, I was listening to the Vince Guaraldi trio who composed the Charlie Bound Christmas yeah. music. There's a song, and now I can't remember which one it is, but every time it comes on, my wife says to me, that's the trolley song, right? From, and I was like, no, it's not. The, I mean, I get there's a piano in both. I get it. They, it's, there's a flourishing effect to what's being played, but... I don't know if that has a name, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's it's a bit like somebody once said to me, have you ever thought about, like somebody actually challenged me, he's like, hum for me the Saturday Night Live song with the saxophone. And you're like, I don't know. It's like saxophone music. <laughs> Everybody has an idea in their head yeah. of like what that kind of like jazzy saxophone music sounds like. But it's like nonsensical when you actually try to piece it together. You actually can't put it together. But when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, that yeah. that's it. But there's no strong melody. It's just like, it's, it's, it's not what saxophones do. Like they just, it's a bunch of notes. And it sounds yeah. jazzy. Yeah, and you know what it isn't? It isn't. It's not that. I just listened to it briefly. It's definitely not even close to no. that. So no, it's, it's I mean, it's that. close so, to that in that it's got the same kind of like repetitive cadence, but the notes are very, very different. 
Sure. It's somewhere in that Charlie Brown Christmas album. So people can listen yeah. to it. See if you find it there too. My wife picks it out every time and says, oh, that's it. And I'm like, I, I feel like that's so. the, it's like the same kind of like transitional repetitive notes music is what it is. They oh, probably all sort of sound the same on a certain level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. sp- speaking of music, actually, that's where my denial comes into play here. Oh, you're denying I'm music. Just, oh man. Well, no, 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 no. It's, it's in that category, certainly in that genus, but this is something I'm just going back to the well on and it's just an oldie, but a goodie. And it's especially because it's this time of year. So, uh, and I'm going to try to not be triggering here, but I think we're going to end up mentioning somebody's name and that's just going to oh, be man. how it is. Actually. Yeah. Let's just do it. So just Chris Tomlin. Oh man. Chris Tomlin. So I was making fun uh, of Chris Tomlin this morning. See, well, this is why we are brothers for more than one reason. Yes. So, uh, and I, I'm not trying to be unfair. Of course, I love Chris Tomlin. No, that's not true. I <laughs> appreciate Chris Tomlin. His music, I'm not a, a, always a fan of. But but here's the thing. I'm kind of denying against this like sensibility get of taking like with these wonderful historical pieces of music and then like adding choruses or really yes. trying to do too much to them. We should really let their natural beauty come forward, even as we maybe reinterpret them. But it's one song in particular because it is that time of year and it's Chris Tomlin. He's just the easy target, loved ones. He's just like the lightning rod for this. It's his joy to the world, parenthetically, unspeakable joy. If you've been a listener for a while, you've heard me say this before. This is a coconut oil denial. You've it done is. this the, before, yeah. And I know. And I'm coming back to it because it's in the title, right? Like it, there's, <laughs> There is so much hypocrisy an oxymoronic nature in the title that I just can't handle it again. So I recently heard it again and I was like, it's one thing to insert a chorus into this very beautiful piece that was written really. And again, this is not like we talked about last week. I think this is not about Luke two. This is about Psalm 98. So this is about the right. second coming, the second advent of our Lord and savior, the second advent where he's bringing about the fullness of his kingdom. But beyond that, How are you, if you're going to write a song and put inside it a new chorus, how is that chorus going to be this joy, unspeakable joy an overflowing? Well, no tongue can tell joy, unspeakable joy. How is that going to be the, yeah. Use your tongue to tell it with me. (laughs) Exactly. I'm just like, this doesn't make any sense. Like the opening as, as most people know to this lovely hymn is joy to the world. The Lord is come. So for the record, the joy is that the Lord is come. It is a joy that we are speaking and expounding to one another and we're speaking it with our tongues, which is certainly tellable and not unspeakable, but the chorus yeah. tells us that's unspeakable joy. I get it. He's trying to talk about the essence of this joy that's deep within him that cannot be communicated. But this is a bit like the whole episode we did where we basically debunked this whole idea of preach the gospel and when necessary yeah. use words. No, no, no. The gospel is meant to be preached, and guess what? It's right. meant to be preached with words. words. So, by definition, yeah, by de- <laughs> yeah, that's it. Otherwise, otherwise, this will become the episode. Yeah, I'd just like to throw on why it was I was making fun of Chris Tomlin this morning <laughs> because it's actually a very <laughs> related situation. All right, go ahead. So we sang, uh, as I mentioned last week. I'm I'm not ashamed of this. There's no reason for me to to hide it or obscure it. We very commonly sing Christmas hymns, and we refer to Advent at our church. We do an Advent can like we have an Advent wreath with candles. Like I, I'm not, not, it's not, I'm not going to beat up on that, but we sang the the classic Christmas hymn. What child is this? And as we were practicing it, cause we, we do it sort of guitar, like sort of, sort of like chorus style, but it's still a hymn. We were singing it and we were very confused because we got to the second chorus 
And when you normally would get to the refrain, instead of this, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, we got the uh, nails shall pierce. The, uh, I can't even oh, figure out where this it is. Version. But so, so we were trying to figure out what happened and how this happened. So we pulled out the hymnals. We used to use hymnals for Christmas hymns. And so we would sing them as in the sort of the classical hymn style. It would just be piano. Um, we haven't used hymnals because of COVID for a long time. So we pulled the lyrics off public domain. What we discovered is that in the hymnal, so this isn't a Chris Tomlin thing. Maybe I'm actually defending Chris Tomlin a little bit in this. What we discovered is that in the hymnal that we use as a church, what happened is they took the last half of the first verse and turned it into a refrain or a chorus, basically, and eliminated the actual original end of the half, end of the verses uh, for the next two stanzas or verses or whatever. So instead of uh, using the, instead of this, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing, instead of that just being like the second half of verse one, that actually became the chorus of the song, eliminating really good theological content in the second right. verse, which is basically connecting the manger to the cross and tying together Christ's singular work and his unified mission of coming not just to live a life of righteousness, but also to die a death in our place. Boom. And you can see how it happens. Someone's like, this is supposed to be a Christmas hymn. And this is literally, there's literally these four lines that don't have to do with the nativity. So let's just like get those out of here. But it's not just Chris Tomlin. It's not even that new of a thing. It seems like we're very much just, let's just screw up songs by changing them. Who cares what the original author said? No, let's see how it is. You're Chris Tomlin lover. No, I really am not. <laughs> Listen, he's if, easy to pick if on. I he's found easy to pick on. That's if all If him it is. and I were out on God's great dance floor, I probably would trip him <laughs> and push him over. That's not true. It's not true. <laughs> he makes it so easy. Anyway, that's enough for my contractual denial that I'm obligated <laughs> to give at least like once biannually. I'd say once yes. every two years for sure. So yeah. I hadn't talked about that in a while and it came up and I was just like, this seems so, as, as a person, maybe this came up recently and then we got to move on. Maybe this came up recently because uh, we're, I was working on some music and it's it's challenging. It's really difficult to write lyrics. I get this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So all the more so though, as I was working on some other things of my own that I came across this piece again, I heard it and I was like, this just see, like there's so much that's incongruent with that chorus Yeah. that I was like, one, you can let it sit by itself. It's beautiful. And second, I was like, it kind of, in some ways, undermines. It's like, if you just evaluate it on the face, if you just are given the lyrics, I think you'd be prone to say, wait a second, yeah. what's going on here? It'd be like if somebody took uh, Go Tell It on the Mountains and then added like the chorus from Indescribable <laughs> into the middle of that song. Right. It'd be like, Go Tell It on the Mountains, Indescribably. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Go Tell It on the Mountain. But you know what? Actually, you can't. You can't tell it on the mountain or you can't tell it anywhere else. On the planes, in the car, right. exactly. in a train. On a plane. <laughs> Is this the Dr. Seuss version of the song? <laughs> you kind I cannot tell it while I eat Greg's oh, green eggs and ham. Yes. Yeah. I cannot I tell say. it, Sam. I am. Well, speaking of things that we can tell and we can <laughs> talk about, we can articulate sort with of. the re- small amount of remaining time that we have. <laughs> let's get into a little incep op. And incep to try op. to be concise, let me 
try to give like a basic definition if we're trying to usher our ways into this actual conversation, which we promised was the anticipated topic of this particular episode. So for me, if I'm talking about the doctrine of inseparable operations, and we basically worked our way up to this point in speaking about the Trinity in various ways, also incorporating two weeks of some lovely denials in the midst of that. So if you haven't heard all that stuff, oh my goodness, you have missed out. So go back and listen. But the doctrine of inseparable operations What this really teaches us is that because the three persons of the Trinity are one God, each person of the Trinity is operative in all of God's external works from creation through redemption to consummation. And I guess like if you press me and we're in the elevator and I got to shorten it even more, I would say something like the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. So we're getting a little bit fancy. And so we should say at the outset, I think this maybe goes without saying, but let's just say it out there so that everybody can be either triggered or comforted to deny the doctrine of inseparable operations is really to undermine classical Trinitarian theology at its core. So don't let somebody tell you that there's this better way of looking at things or we separate all this stuff, even though it sounds like it's a really formal title and some sounds nuanced and really particular. This is just classical Trinitarian theology. We're just slapping some words against it so that in a concise way we can describe it. So, Where do you want to go from here, Tony? Like, what is it that we need to talk about here? Yeah, so it does bear saying, because I think sometimes, and I'll take ownership for this, sometimes in our zeal to affirm or to reinforce how central a given theology is, um, we give the impression that there's no variation within orthodoxy on a given theology. Sure. And inseparable operations, I think, sometimes can be one of those places. So I mentioned it earlier. If you were to ask me to give a really robust explanation of inseparable op- operations, there would actually be areas that I would I would disagree with or differ from Dr. Vidu on, um, much to his consternation, I think. Um, and, and so inseparable operations and divine divine simplicity, which are are divine simplicity, is like the the beginning of the, the doctrine, and inseparable operations is kind of like the outcome of the this doctrine. Um, there are variations in there that we need to account for, but what, what we have to affirm as Orthodox Trinitarian Christians is that there is no external work of the Trinity that the uh, that all three persons are not fully involved in. That's that's kind of like plank number one, right. and there uh, that to take away any one of the persons in the work would would cause the entire work to cease to exist. Right. And so you could have someone like a, like Adonis Vidu, and I don't think that I'm I'm overstating this. Who would say not only do all three persons do the exact same work, but they do the exact same work in the exact same way. There's no difference in how the Father executes creation as how the Son executes creation. So when we said last week that the missions are are different than the uh, the processions, and that when we're talking about the missions, we're talking about the son's unique way of working in creation. He works in creation in a sonly way, that is, in a way that is sent by the Father uh, as the Son, and the Spirit works in creation as a way that is sent by the Father and the Son as the Spirit, and then the Father works in creation as the Father in an unsent way, right? Dr. Vidu, I think, would say... Uh, he would say, no, like the father, the son, and the spirit are one agent in creation in, in any external act. And therefore not only are they doing 
uh, are they participating or working in the same work? They're actually, the, the work is identical. It's a single work that each of them is doing together. Um, I would say something, and I think someone like Dr. Horton would, would probably agree with me on this. I think it's okay for us to say that the son, the father, the son, and the spirit are working together, not in a uh, composite way, but they're, they're accomplishing a single work in a way that is so radically unified that it is a single work, despite the fact that the three right of them on. are are each working, uh, and that each of them each of them works the work in a a distinct way that is proper to their person. I, I think that that is a better way to articulate this. What we have to exclude is a theology that basically says like the three people are just sort of like all contributing to a single work in a compo- right. composite sense. So right now, Jesse and I are contributing to the work of producing this ep- this episode in a composite sense, and that Jesse is adding his own distinct work. I'm adding my own distinct work, and the two come together like Voltron to create a, a single work <laughs> that that's coming together. <laughs> You can think of this other way, and, and Dr. Vidu draws this distinction between hard inseparability, which is what he would advocate. And I think I think he would probably have some quibbles with my view, but he would recognize what I say as as hard inseparability as as well. And then what he calls soft inseparability, which is basically like, you know, you have a house that's built of distinct bricks, and each brick contributes to the to the whole. And so, yes, they're working inseparably because if you take one brick out and put a different brick in, it's actually a different house, philosophically speaking. But each one is contributing its own unique work that is not dependent on the other and is not shared with any other brick in the house. So we have to say, with inseparable operations, we have to say that God works as one because he is, in fact, one. And you could not take any particular person's work out and replace it with something else and, right. and not have the entire work collapse into nothingness. That's where we have to go with inseparable operations. And it, this is, again, one of those doctrines where we kind of have to we have to recognize that because our language is creaturely and because we're speaking about this inseparable thing in ways and languages and words that are necessarily separable that we're only ever speaking analogically. So even, even the phrase inseparable operations is a composite of letters and phrases and sounds and concepts that are slammed together to combine in a non-inseparable way. I could talk about what it means to be inseparable. I could talk about what it means to be an operation and I slam those two things together to create this concept of inseparable operations. Inseparable operations actually are inseparable on a fundamental level that we can't even describe. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is why I went with insep op. Right. Cause that's Cause better. It, Cause it's not describing it. It's just, a, exactly. it's just an incoherent series of sounds, <laughs> but actually to not put too fine a point on it. That's kind of exactly what you're saying is that we're going right. to recognize with all the stuff we talk about. We, I feel like we just need to like, do we just need to pre-record a disclaimer about that and just slap yeah. it into every episode as we talk about the Trinity? Yeah. But yeah, you're exactly right. So like when we look at the scriptures though, I think the point we're trying to make here is there's no room for flexibility in this particular matter, unless you want right. to go outside of Orthodox, historic Christianity, especially Trinitarian right. theology. And th- we see this pattern. There's like a pattern of expression of this consistency and this coherence in the work of God being all the work of God right. in a pattern of like divine naming that we see manifest in the scriptures throughout. So this is probably not a bad time of year to talk about this because we have a tendency with our calendar to overemphasize one particular aspect or person of the Trinity. And we don't do this, I think, in a way that's nefarious, but we tend to like overemphasize or undersell other parts of the Trinity in the work of one person of the Trinity. Right. So like we look to the scriptures. 
One place that really jumps out to me is if you look at like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, here's what Paul writes. He says, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And I find this a wonderful example of what we see throughout the scriptures within the idea of insep op, because the apostle is kind of like, he's appropriating two common Jewish strategies. There's, you have this like one drawn from the Old Testament, right? And then there's like another kind of borrowed from like this Greco-Roman, like God speak process for affirming the absolute unity of God's identity and action. Because that sentence seems like a confusing sentence on the face outside of understanding it in light of this doctrine. So the language of one God and one Lord, that's drawing from Deuteronomy 6, 4, right? right. Like, I mean, yeah. that's straight Shema, like to affirm the unity of God's identity and the language about all things being from him and through him, that's borrowing from this discourse often used to describe like the various causes of the universe in order to right. affirm that God alone is the supreme cause of all things. You know, like that is that all things are from him and through him and to him. That's like Romans 11. Right. So to me, what makes this amazing is the striking feature of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, just by one example, is that Paul locates the distinct identities of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ within the singular divine identity, and then within that singular divine causality, the plans he plans and accomplishes all things for God's glory. So yeah. the money shot, like the payoff is this, the distinction between divine persons is a distinction that obtains within the singular agency of God without compromising, compromising or dividing that agency. Right. Like this is this is brilliant, right? Like human beings can't come up with this stuff. Yeah. This is like part and parcel of. Man, that's a horrible phrase to use for this part and parcel. <laughs> <laughs> uh. This is. Oscar said, "This is like embedded in who God is, right? And and only God. The the reason why we're having a, an episode to talk about this is because it's not common nature to us. It's not right. normative. We have no categories for this. So insep op is something unique to God, and so we ought to praise and worship this. But this is part of who God is. We need right. to understand that this is the way that He acts, and it's not. There is no distinction here that brings about some kind of contradiction, right?" Yeah. Yeah. So it, it might be helpful just to run through logically how we get from what the scripture says to this idea that God is, you know, simple and is, uh, and therefore acts in a simple way. Cause that's really, that's really what the doctrine of inseparable operations is. You said it really nicely on the last episode. You said it again on this episode that the reason we affirm, you said it in a slightly different way, but I'm going to paraphrase it. The reason we affirm that God acts inseparable is because God is in fact inseparable and therefore he acts in a way that's consistent with himself, right? Sure. We, we can't postulate that God is somehow simple in, in himself and then acts in a composite way. We just can't, we just can't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And so we go from, we go from scriptures, you know, Dr. Vidu's book does this way more in depth than I'm going to, but we go from scriptures that say something like, who is like the Lord, who is like Yahweh. There is none like our God, right? right. We go from, we go from language like that, where we, we affirm scripturally the utter uniqueness of God. There, there's God exists in a class of one. There's no other God, even even other 
divine, you know, semi-divine entities or angels or demons or powerful beings still don't exist in the same class as God. And so we go from the the repeated, I mean, there's so many verses in the Old Testament to point to for this kind of thing. And you just, it's like throw a rock at the Bible and you're going to hit a page that says something about God being unique. You go from this idea that there is only one God and God is utterly unique to all of a sudden there's there's these three persons on the pages, not only in the New Testament. We talked about how it's in the Old Testament too. So let's just stick to the Old Testament. You go from the commitment that God is utterly unique and there is none like our God. There's no one right. else like God. And then all of a sudden you have the angel of the Lord speaking out of the burning bush, who is also somehow the Lord himself, right? When Moses in the burning bush or Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army, or when the, the, the angel comes to Gideon's parents and they say, or not Gideon, uh, Samson's parent. And he says, well, my, the, my name is the wonderful. Like we get all these different glimpses. Oh yeah. Somehow we have to account for the fact that there is no one like God, yet there seems to be this plurality within God. Right. That there seems to be these this plurality of, of beings or agents or entities that are properly and rightly called God. And so what we have to say then is that those those are in fact the one God. There is only one God. And so if if this thing we see here, A is is God, and this thing B that we see as God, those A and B are actually one and the same God, even as they remain distinct as A and B. And I mean, that's the doctrine of the Trinity right there, right? We have one God in three persons. Well, we go from that, and, and that's then we have the doctrine of simplicity, because if you have parts that are coming together to form God, then God is actually not God, but those parts give God his godness, making them more supreme than he is. And so we, we have to avoid any theology where God gets his godness from any other thing apart from the simple, single right. fact that he is God. Now, when we, how we get to inseparable operations and we're talking about that one single, simple God, even as he is three persons, even as God is three persons acting in, into creation, well, Dr. Vidu, and I think this is the right place to start, begins with the work of creation itself. And so creation, if you really break it down, is the act of God causing to be something that is not God. That, that's what creation is. God causes something to be that is not, is not God. Well, there can only be one act of creation. So if the father, if the father creates something and the son has a second act of creation, then, then there's actually two, two realities that are created independent of each other. But what we affirm is that there's actually one created reality. Everything apart from God is created reality. And then there's God. Right. There's not like everything apart from created reality that was created by the father is one thing. And everything that is created reality that was created by the son is another thing. It's one created reality. And so the act of creation itself logically can only be a singular, simple act. There was, there was God and nothing else. And then there was a singular act of creation and everything else that was not God came into being or, or the sequence of events that caused everything else to come into being was initiated. Well, right there, we have the primeval, the, like the, the prime act of, of divine simplicity is creation. And it can only be accomplished by one, one thing. You can only have one act of creation. Right. Well, there we have it. Divine simplicity in this singular act of creating is the first example of an inseparable operation. And so now, now what we do is we, we build on that and we recognize that if God acted in that way, 
that's because that's how God exists. That applies to every other act that God does towards creation, whether it's redemption, whether it's sanctification, whether it's the eschaton, whether it's causing a death, keeping the universe in orbit, all of these other things, God's works of creation and providence, right? That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Well, God's work of creation, but then also everything that comes after it as God's works of providence, that's all a single simpular, a single singular, singular, <laughs> let's just invent a new word. It's a simpler, it. it's a simpler act. Yes. That, that is what it is, right? When yes, God, when we is. say that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, even that phrase, even though in Hebrews, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous, whether it's the son upholding the universe by the word of his power, or whether it's the father upholding the universe by the word of his power. And the word actually is the son in that it's a little ambiguous, but that act of upholding the universe by the word of his power simply by sheer force of will, God desires it to be, and so it is. Well, it's not as though the Son is upholding part of the universe by the word of his power, and the Father is upholding a different part of the universe by the word of his power, such that part of the universe could cease to be upheld and the rest of it would still work. Like when when you look at these different things that we affirm that God does, right? His chief acts, if we want to phrase it this way, the primary things that we affirm God does fall under creation and providence. Well, creation we demonstrated is a is a singular simple act that that the three persons each do together, but not in a composite sense, but as a single act as the single god. Well, providence is the same thing. Even though it it sort of unfolds in a series of acts, there's this fundamental primary cause underlying it. God is the primary cause of all things sustaining their being. Well, that's a that's a single simpler act. Single simpular. I can't get away from it. <laughs> I love it's, it. I, I mean, it has to be a new word now. This it's this We're simpler act that God stamp. does to sustain everything. So we we really have to understand this because if we start to bifurcate this work, and this this is where something like EFS gets it gets it really wrong, right? They bifurcate this work. This is most prominent in someone like Bruce Ware, who explicitly says that the Father could have acted unilaterally apart from the Son and the Spirit, but chose not to. So, so the Son and the Spirit are like these auxiliary actors that really right. their participation is optional, and they could have just sat it out if they wanted to. Well, that doesn't make any sense, because if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are actually, in fact, one God, then the one God doing something must necessarily involve all three persons of the Trinity. Right and, and this is where there does get to be some difference, right? I would want to say something, I would want to affirm with some sort of classic language that it's okay for us, and this we're not going to get in... We might have to do one more episode. We'll have to parse out the, the doctrine of appropriations a little bit more. But I would want to lean into those doc, the doctrine of appropriations, which we talked about a little bit last week. Lean into that a little bit and use that to identify particular things that are attributed to individ- distinct persons particularly, right? The father is primarily seen as the architect of creation. He's the one that initiates the work. He's the one that designs the plan. And then the Son and the Spirit are presented in Scripture as executing that plan in their own particular ways. I think that's a perfectly fine way to think about it, even though that lends itself to sort of this soft inseparability that the that Dr. Vidu wants to push against. As long as we understand that we are saying this with a little bit of an asterisk, that when we say the Father plans the work of creation and the son accomplishes the work of creation and the spirit perfects the work of creation. What we are not saying is that the son is not 
a participant in the work of perfecting creation, right? This is a function of us as composite creatures who speak in composite sentences and can't think of a thing like this, can't think of anything as a singular, simple thing. See how slow I had to say that? Because I can't get away from the word (laughs) simpler. This is a function of our limitations. So when we say that the father acts as the origin or the architect or the planner of any given work of the Trinity, and the son works as the accomplisher and the spirit works as the perfecter of any given work of the Trinity. That's a notional difference that exists in our mind to describe a single simple act that we cannot describe. It's not to say that these are actual real distinctions within the persons or within this, within the act of the Trinity. Um, we just can't, we can't speak of it another way, but it's important for us, even as we speak in ways that lend themselves to picturing God as this composite entity that acts in a composite way that we remind ourselves any chance that we get that God is not actually like that. And that's important. Right. Yeah. That's pretty tasty stuff right there. I, I don't know how people are going to catch on to this INSEP op. If you don't keep saying INSEP op, you keep Simpular. saying inseparable operations. We need to like... Man, I feel like we're on a run inventing terms. Insep op. Keep it tight. Yeah. So here's the thing. You're right. God is simpler. God is simpler, right? I think Mm -hmm. that's absolutely accurate. That's the kind of word that's going to end up in some kind of Christian rap song because it's accurate and it strikes me that, isn't this what we'd expect? Like if we're going to say God is actually simple, the outworkings of that quite literally is that there would be inseparable operations of the Godhead in all the external works. So what we find is that mysterious as the scriptures are, and I don't mean mysterious and they don't disclose this, mysterious in the sense that everything you just said, that we don't have categories, language, it's appropriate or normative toward this, everything is notional, nuanced. That's okay, because what we find is everything is reinforced here. The idea that God is simple is reinforced by the inseparable operations and vice versa. So that by the time we get to Hebrews, Hebrews 1, which you already quoted, and let me read just a couple of verses from the beginning of that glorious chapter. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by uh, t- spoke to us by his son, I almost said simpler, whom he anointed, whom he anointed, whom he appointed, now you've got me all twisted on this, <laughs> <laughs> all the language is gone, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, and now we're talking about Jesus in some more distinct sense, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So where this lands in me, even as we talk about this, is in this kind of summation. So within the undivided action of God toward his creatures, the three persons act in accordance with their distinct identities. So in every work of God outside of himself, the father acts from himself. The son acts from the father. The spirit acts from the father and the son. The three act in an indivisible, but not an indistinct manner. Yes. And so this is like the glory of who God is, that he is consistent in his nature. And yet in that nature, we see this lovely distinction of persons, but we tend to have this sense of overemphasizing the distinction of the persons and backing into the work. And I think what we're saying is, or we're trying to push it back against in this episode is don't do that thing. Don't, don't do yeah. that. Loved ones. Like there, there is an insep op here that's present. And this is what God, what makes God simpler. This lovingly, 
loving yes. and beautiful kind of way. So embrace in this season the simularity of who God is because <laughs> because that's the thing. You have to make up a word when a single word, like that's like a, a, a wonderful portmanteau, but like when a singular word will not do, you ought to press them together like yes. you're trying to make applesauce because what's going to come out of that press is something that's glorious and more combined and more lovely and more cohesive yeah. because you form things together. I think simpler is something that we should just run with. I mean, that's like how German works though, isn't it? Like, don't you just like slam <laughs> together? I think in German, you can just like shove together <laughs> words to make new words. Like you have like, Gestaltelichten. I don't know what that would be. I probably just said something untorrid. So I want to close, I want to close this by sort of like giving an analogy of God's inseparable operations and, and, and still an accounting for how it is that we still can see this is getting into the doctrine of appropriations. We may or may not do another episode on, on just that, but I talked about this analogy when I had Dr. Vito on the show before, but it's difficult for humans to conceptualize something that actually truly is a simple, a simple object or concept. And so what we tend to think of when we try to think about this as something that's more like an irreducibly complex right. uh, concept. That's what we think of. Right, which has some utility, right? So if you think about a triangle, a triangle is uh, three lines arranged so the ends of each line are touching each other, which creates three interior angles that have a total sum of 180 degrees, right? That's the definition of a triangle. Three straight lines connected to each other at their, at their end points, creating three interior angles. Excellent geometry. You, you can't reduce that any further than that. You can't you can't Correct. take anything away from that and still have a triangle. If you take away one of the lines, you don't have a triangle, you have an angle. If you somehow were to take away one of the angles by like chopping off the end so they no longer connect, then you don't have a triangle because you don't you just don't have the angles. So we can think of a triangle as an analog to a simple object because we can't reduce it any further. Right. But we also can recognize that a triangle still has three faces. And so if you have a triangle that's oriented towards you, let's say it's like a three-dimensional triangle, not a pyramid, although you could probably use a pyramid if you want it. You have it oriented a certain way. And so you have, from your perspective, there's the line. Let's say there's one line that is sort of parallel to your perspective. It'd, it'd be like opposite you on a, on a plane parallel to you. And then you have the other ones that are angled towards you with the point facing you. Let's right. say that that's the static orientation of this triangle. This is an, this is an analogous analogous. This is an analog to <laughs> the Father, Son, and the Spirit, right? Because each side, even if these are identically length, this is an equilateral triangle or an equal. I can't. Equilateral. Equilateral triangle, not equilateral. You got it. Equilateral. You want, you want different fi different sides? No, no. Everything's the same. Equilateral. Yeah. Equilateral. equilateral. Lateral seems wrong because lateral is like side. <laughs> anyway, this is an equilateral <laughs> triangle, right? So the sides are the same length. The angles are all the same length. Everything yes, about yes. each sort of third of it is identical to the other thirds. You got it. Just like the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Well, not just like. Similar to how the Father, Son, and the Spirit. <laughs> man, I'm really struggling here. Similar to how the Father, Son, and the Spirit, uh, when looking at them individually or distinctly, are identical to each other. It's only in relation to each other that we can distinguish them, right? So I can only distinguish the far line that is is perpendicular or parallel to my plane. I can only distinguish that by the fact that relative to me, it's perpendicular to my plane. The other two, similarly, they're they're angled towards me. Right. I can still recognize those uh, faces of the triangle distinguished from each other 
without now still saying that they aren't doing the same thing in the triangle. Each of those three lines or the three angles, uh, each of those are contributing the exact same thing to the overall operation of triangleness, right? They're each right. contributing the same thing. They're each creating the same lines and the same angles in relation to each other. But because the triangle is positioned towards me in a particular way, and it necessarily is positioned towards me in a particular way, I can distinguish these lines and angles from each other. The doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of appropriations functions in a similar way, right? The three persons of, and, and this is actually more, more of a support for Dr. Vidu's version of inseparable operations in mine. The three persons of the Trinity are working into creation, even if they're working in exactly the same way, that's still a discernible work because we can distinguish them from each other in relation to which person of the Trinity, where they fall in the taxes or the order of the Trinity. We can still distinguish that it's the second person of the Trinity, because as Jesse said, the second person of the Trinity does the work as from the first, and the third person of the Trinity does the work as from the first and the second persons. Right. And so even though they're doing the same work, it's distinguishable as the work of the third person or the work of the second person or the work of the first person in relation to the other persons. And this is the doctrine of appropriations, right? This is why we can say, like we said last week, this, this act of creation, I can detect a note of the sun, right? Because it's through the sun, it's through the word that all things that were created were created, right? I can detect a note of the Holy Spirit in this work of, of sanctification. Even though the Father and the Son are doing the same work, I can detect the note of the, the Spirit in this, in an A, B, or C way, right? So we don't have to say that the persons do the work differently from each other in order for us to be able to say we can differentiate which person is doing the work in their unique in their unique way of working, right? I know that that's really complicated, and this probably goes a little bit beyond sort of this fundamentals concept we're trying to get at here, but it's important for us to say the doctrine of inseparable operations does not mean we no longer can see that it is the son who is pri is primarily identified as our redeemer. Right. And so when the when the scriptures or the creeds for that matter, right? I believe in God the Father, the creator uh or almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, right? That that phrase identifying the father as the creator of heaven and earth, that's the doctrine of appropriations. What it's saying in short form is that I believe in God the Father the Almighty, who the the Bible attributes primarily the work of creation to. That does not mean that the Son and the Spirit are not participants or active or working in creation. So we have to right. be able to make that distinction. And I've, I've found that that triangle analogy, as complicated as it is and as difficult as it is to sort of explain, it sort of helps. I, maybe I need it's to get like bad. a three-dimensional object, because you could do the same thing with a, a pyramid if you wanted to, I suppose. Yeah, then you, but then you have more sides. That's, That's more true. complicated, actually. Yeah, so yeah, that this is, Listen, this is the only place I'm pretty sure on the internet where you can get really substantial, deep, technical reform theology, Trinitarian theology at that, and Euclidean geometry all <laughs> in the same episode. So we've got yes. equilateral and equal angle triangles. So, so here's what I would say to everyone. Listen, do us a favor. If this is something that you think would be helpful to a loved one, would you consider sharing this episode? Or maybe that person is about to take a geometry test and they need to remember that the area of an equilateral triangle can be easily remembered. It's a square root of three divided by four times one of the sides squared because they're all <laughs> equilateral. Yes. So 
maybe they need that too. So share this with a friend. One of the things I want to say by way of gratitude and thanks is for all of those who support us with emails or reaching out and leaving voicemails so we can build up again. We're still trying to get that question cast together, loved ones. So we need more voicemail questions. We're also thankful for those who have decided to come alongside with some financial support. And I want to especially thank brother Jason who joined the ranks recently by giving through Patreon. And if you too are interested in giving just a little bit, there are many people that give just a little bit to help us cover our bills. And I'm reminded as the year is about to turn over, so also all of our bills. (laughs) So (laughs) we are so thankful for those who help us to make sure that the podcast is free for everybody. If you're listening to this and it's free for you, which is to say it is, then that's because so many have joined together and have given some to support this. So you go to the reformbrotherhood.com. There'll be a little, little link in the upper right hand corner. You can click on, this says, join the brotherhood. And there are seven different things. There's a little bit of a smorgasbord. It's a variety. It's a potluck, if you will, of ways you can support us. And number four is become a Patreon donor. And these aren't ranked in any particular way. It just happens to be number four. My favorite part is so many people have heard me say about this particular part <laughs> of our website is that, you know, Martin Luther, when he was like, let me give these 95 theses. Let me nail these to the door of Wittenberg so I can give some debate. You know, he wasn't anticipating, of course, a reformation, but I assume now if you were to look back retrospectively and he would come to this webpage, which says the reformation just got a whole lot better. He'd be like, finally, this is what I was actually (laughs) after. This is what I wanted. Finally, where's the link to Patreon? Yes. So in this particular season, one of the things you can do to help us out is share the episode. You could become a donor through Patreon. You go to our little store that we have. Maybe you're looking for something to fill a temporal need, and that is you need a shirt and you would like our faces to be on that shirt. That's something <laughs> that we can also help satisfy. So yes. um, check it out. Uh, but thank you, Brother Jason, and all those who give so regularly to the podcast. That's what honestly makes it available for everybody. Yeah. So we are very, very grateful. Yeah, and one more one more uh, little bit of housekeeping to remind you of. We are in the middle of a contest right now, and this contest is sponsored by a listener of the show who is the uh, owner and operator of SystematicThreadology.com, which is a Christian apparel website. You can purchase T-shirts, you can purchase baby clothes, you can purchase <laughs> mugs and all <laughs> sorts of stuff. A, it was such a weird pause between baby and clothes. <laughs> I don't know. That was a, that was a weird pause. Uh, but anyway, you can purchase all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, and, it, you know, he's a listener of the show. He's a friend of the show. And he's generously provided, I think, what might be the coolest fanny pack that's ever existed. Oh, for sure. It's an awesome purple fanny pack that says Reform Turbo on it. Sure to start conversations if you were to wear it to work or, I don't know, like... Anywhere. Uh, like church, <laughs> wear it to church. You wear it to, like, you could go, like, witnessing with it. You get your tracks, right? Pull them right out of there. Boom. Uh, and you can you can win this uh, fanny pack by going to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformedbrotherhood.com slash two six eight and there'll be one of those uh, one of those little modules where you go to this website, share this episode, blah blah blah, and you get entries. I'll tell you, it's it's not uh, it, not a lot of people are doing the contest. We want more people to do the contest, but if you get on the ground floor before people really get into it, you have yes. a pretty good chance of winning. So check it out. Uh, we want you to do all you can to delude those entries to make it harder to win, but <laughs> uh, we want you to check it out. And we really would encourage you to check out this systematic Threadology website. I know we joke around 
roundabout Christmas gifts and midwinter no reason gifts and stuff. But this is a hardworking brother in the Lord who is trying to produce a good product. So please do check out his website and consider giving him a little bit of business and helping him out uh, this Christmas season. This is a killer, killer fanny pack. It is. It's just awesome. go to the website. If you want to see what it looks like, go to systematicthreadology.com. There is actually an image of a dude like wearing it like kind of across chest there, which is like, I'm not sure I could get away with that, but no. I respect the game right there. And this is an absolutely killer fanny pack. Like I know you're probably thinking, listen, the fanny pack is a statement on its own. That is true, but this is next level. And it's getting you in that lovely reformed theology vibe. So we're going to need to run these different uh, kind of contests. And my understanding is if you've been a winner in the past, things are in the mail, right? Yes. Yeah, we did get some emails. Life is crazy sometimes, folks. Things come up. And uh, I was a little derelict in getting all of our most recent uh, prizes out. But all of the books have been shipped. Uh, most of my tracking numbers say they should be received sometime, actually probably before you hear this episode, hopefully, uh, except for you, that one person in Canada, that one that might take a little longer to get to you. Uh, but yes, <laughs> oh, those are out Canada. there and we'll try to do a much better job of getting those out promptly uh, once the contest has been won. It's coming. Listen, I, but as we end this, as we wind this down, finally, can I just read like the description on the Systematic Theology website Please of do. the fanny pack? Please okay, do. just just the first paragraph because it's a fanny pack, so you need more than one paragraph to really describe its essence. This is it. A fanny pack is is not. Um, what's the word we coined? I just lost it already. Simpular. It's not simpular. No, it's not simpular. It's lots so, of components. Exactly. There's many components to this fanny pack, which is in many ways why it's something that you definitely want to win. So here's how it reads. What do you need to carry with you? Cigars? Beard oil? Pocket New Testament? Store them all in this fanny pack that packs a bunch and sends a message. I thought I was going to say punch, but it says bunch. (laughs) And that message is... Where's the double dry hopped IPA <laughs> with this fanny pack? The world will know that you're reformed in turbo mode. I yes. think this is a perfect encapsulation yes. of everything that you and I stand for, Tony. So it's true. Go to Reform Brotherhood, share this podcast with a friend, talk about the Lord, get in on INSEP op. That's all I've got. <laughs> well, since that's all you've got, that's all I've got. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.